This is Cinephile. This is incredible. Moonlight won Best Picture. One of the best actors alive here on the studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. The point of good acting is that you're supposed to be real. Great to have here on Cinephile Ice Cube, my new best friend. Yeah, yeah, man. Here's the man himself, Robert De Niro. Who can tell what a reaction will be to a film that nobody knows? Vigo Mortensen. It's one of those movies that when it finishes, you go, now what's going to happen? Big guest, Mark Wahlberg. Ted was one of those pivotal moments in my career, like Boogie Nights, where, you know, the subject matter just seems so ridiculous and absurd. Yet, when reading the script, you know, you never want to put it down. Cinephiles. The Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Oh, man, I just got finished saying how you have to be on point vocally as Jim Brackmeyer, and I completely punted that one. Woody Harrelson gets close to the essence of this dynamic, irascible, essential figure, making the film a fine introduction to a president far more consequential than the man he succeeded. That's Kyle Smith of the National Review. LBJ, all over it this time on Cinephile, my review of the film. And we are talking to the celebrated director, Rob Ryder. I don't know about making the trip to New York to meet him, but I, I promise you, he's going to be great as he talks not only about this new film, LBJ, but some of the other notable films of his career. It is great to have you once again with us on Cinephile. Coming up, we'll have some streaming suggestions as well as Rob Reiner and LBJ and also my friend Dahmer. So we spoke to the writer-director, Mark Myers, on last week's Cinephile, and he was great. And thanks to everybody who listened last week. If you're listening on TuneIn or the ESPN app, I uh, appreciate the support. And, of course, then it comes out on iTunes. Um, Shortly, and out of spite to Mark Simon, who thought it was too long, and out of spite to Dan Stanzi, who thought it was too long and didn't give me eye contact, and to anybody who thinks the podcast in general was too long, so like an hour and 20 minutes, we're going to repurpose the Scorsese Age of Innocence this time in the podcast. So just you just need to edit up the last part where I thank all the guests, and we're just going to put it back here again, because I feel like if someone sees hour and 20, they go, oh my God, and then they hear Ben Lyons talking about City of God, they're not going to be able to get through the entire thing. So Wait a minute, so we're, you want me to copy... The Scorsese, the long Scorsese story from last week, and add it to the end of this one, right? Because this we're just doing why don't you movies? just do an edited version that's shorter? No, because I think I emptied the tank and it was good, and I and I questioned you and Mark both saying it was too long because I'm like, well, it was good. Like that's like saying God with the Wind was too long, like but it was great. Like yeah, it's a little long, but it's awesome. So just deal with it. And, and let the record reflect, if all the tweets we get are saying that it's too long, then you and Mark will be vindicated. You'll go, yeah, I told you. I was not trying to steer you wrong. It was too long. So we'll find out. Tweet us at Cinephile ESPN, Adnan ESPN. Let us know what you think of the episode. LBJ, Dan Stanzik. By the way, on uh, iTunes, please give us a review and a ranking. I feel like we haven't had as many of those lately. So please do go to iTunes and rank the uh, podcast. Of course, I do my movies at a four Maple Leafs. Please rank it at a five stars. Leave a review. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. We just like to have the feedback, and we appreciate you doing that for us. Dan Stanzik is politically inclined. He likes his uh, he likes his politics. He likes his U.S. history. I didn't know much about LBJ until I'd seen the Brian Cranston movie All the Way with LBJ, which is very good. Dan and I both like We both love Cranston. Hopefully, we'll get him on the podcast at some point. He's got a new film coming out, Last Flag Flying, next week. Can't wait. So now we have the latest LBJ project. This is from Rob Reiner, the director, and it stars Woody Harrelson. And the first question becomes, how do you top what was already made? And how challenging is that in Hollywood to have two competing projects at the same time? Is there something to be said for when the first project comes out? Um, you know, does the second one feel like, okay, well, I already, I already learned that in the other movie, so why am I learning this again? How is this one going to be differentiated from the other? 
And I think that Rob Reiner just took a smart approach in that it feels like he didn't really pay attention to the other one. Like, he's he's just banking on you watching LBJ and not having seen all the way, and you don't have HBO, and maybe you didn't see the Brian Cranston version, um, because that's probably the best way to do it. Just tell the story you want to tell. And he's really focusing on, same as all the way, which is the, really the pivotal moments in his life, which is post-Kennedy and all the challenges around it. Um, so you don't get any, you know, what's LBJ like when he was a 10-year-old? Nobody cares about that. You don't get LBJ post-presidency, because nobody cares about that. So just focuses on um, when he really was the center of everything. A lot of lines I have to quote. This is early on, because I think the movie does very effectively is it shows his perspective and how he was an outsider. The only thing worse than a liberal is a liberal from Texas. Even though he was a Democrat, he clearly had you know right-wing leanings. He compares Kennedy to a show horse, himself as a workhorse, and feels that he's always getting a bad knock from other people. He says, I could walk across the Potomac and the papers would say, Lyndon Johnson can't swim. In fact, in 64, when Kennedy won it, 70 million votes cast, decided by 112,000 votes. As most people know, it was narrowly elected. And after JFK, and the guy who plays JFK is very good, because you're always tough when you play the uh, Kennedy accent. You don't want to overdo it or do it too broadly. He did a nice job with it. And at one point, he's talking to Bobby. He says, we have to have LBJ. This is when they're running, excuse me, to be vice president. And he says, he's a sensitive man with an enormous ego. But he's really important because he's not me. You know, I'm Massachusetts liberal. He's got the South, and this is the way you win these things. Like, it's got to be getting in the yang, and we canvass the entire country. Bobby Kennedy's like, no, Lyndon Johnson doesn't agree with this. He's not the same level as us on race relations, on social issues. Like, no, he's – but JFK really pushes on it to get it done. And we thankfully have the same scene as we saw in All the Way, which is Lyndon Johnson taking talking while taking a dump and being very profane. So, yeah, that is clearly now – based on extensive research of what Lyndon Johnson was like. But honestly, there's a, there's a couple of lines that you go, I, I really don't understand where he is on race because he's talking to the great Richard Jenkins, who's playing a Georgia senator, and he's very clearly racist. And he says to him, what did Abe Lincoln say after three days of being drunk? I freed the what? And they start laughing. And you're going, oh, my God. Like, I, I knew he wasn't as progressive as Kennedy, but maybe he's on the clear the other side. Or is this just bad humor with an old buddy from Georgia? I mean, he, as he says of Strom Thurmond, he's an a-hole and a moron. So this guy's a very blunt guy and very crass. And later in the film, when you start to see the transition, when he does start to realize that maybe I am misguided on terms of race, and Jenkins says to him, this is the pres- preservation of the way of life. And LBJ says, then why are we whispering? Because there's a black servant in the room. And she's like, leaves the room. And he's like, all right, if, it, if, it's, if there's nothing wrong with slavery, then why is it something that has to be guarded. And I think his wife really explains Lyndon Johnson well. The best way you could describe Lyndon Johnson is he was a good man in a tough spot. I mean, after a hundred years, a Southerner was elected president, um, which is why people in the South were so happy to finally get their voice heard. But he's, he's doing it under the most horrific of circumstances, which is JFK's assassination. Uh, when he actually does go up for election, though, he had the biggest margin of victory since 1820. And was responsible for many things I did not realize. Medicare, Medicaid, the Voting Rights Act. And he won 44 of 50 states, 61% of the popular vote over Goldwater. And yet, what he really is damning against him is the Vietnam War. And and once he put America in there, it was like, no going back. March 31st, uh, 1968, chose not to stand for re-election, which is rare for a sitting president to not say, I want to go ahead and do it. And this is the best line of the entire film. Which is when LBJ really kind of starts to come around on civil rights and realizes, no, what Kennedy was pushing for is accurate. He says, never underestimate the strength of a martyr's cause or the size of a Texan's balls. Both two things that you cannot 
underestimate. LBJ, Woody Harrelson, full makeup, looks just like him. We've got to get him on Cinefile because I think he's a phenomenal guy. I'm giving LBJ three Maple Leafs. I recommend it for all of you to go see it, especially if an interest in history. And best part of all, it's 92 minutes. What up, Rob Reiner? Let's make a short movie, really instructive. Well done. Comments, suggestions, Dan Stanzik. No, is this in theaters? When can I see this? Where can I see this? Okay, thank you. November 3rd in theaters, so make sure people check it out. Uh, Really good cast. Not only would it help him, like I said, Richard Jenkins, I always enjoy his work, so he's in there as well. My Friend Dahmer is the film that we talked to writer-director Mark Myers about last time. So what this story is about is this. A guy who is a high school classmate of Dahmer decided to make a graphic novel about him, and now this is an adaptation from Mark Myers, and... I mean, it's challenging subject matter, and then it isn't. I mean, it is because you just hear Dahmer, and you go, wait, is this how we're sowing the seeds of cannibalism? Like, what's this film about? But instead, it's like, I guess it would be like, you know, anybody who's famous before they were famous. So this is, you know, before everybody knew who Jeffrey Dahmer was, he was this notorious serial killer. So it's an origin story <laughs> of a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. It's like Wolverine, except he's a serial killer who eats people. Um but our buddy Owen Gleiberman of Variety, he put it well. He said, uh, this is the film that Gus Van Sant's Elephant wanted to be. Elephant was about, you know, a dramatization of what happened in Columbine. And so, again, it's about that whole kind of unnerving, unsettling tone of why people do the things they do. And particularly in high school, how people are just so awkward and uncomfortable. So, uh, as I said to Mark Myers last time on Cinefile, I thought he really nailed the tone of that picture well and that feeling really well. And give it up for uh, our boy Ross here, the, the main actor in the movie, because... I don't know how you go from Disney star to playing my friend Dahmer, but he was able to to pull off the challenge of it. And Ross Lynch is his name. And Hayes, by the way, plays the mom in the movie. She's very good as well. But I thought it was a good movie. I think if you have an interest in true crime, you'll like it. And yet, it's not a film with much violence. Like It's not a film where they're sensationalizing anything. I think if you just have an interest in psychology uh, and high school and morality, then I think you'll really find it interesting. Gladwin's direct quote was this. It sees Jeffrey Dahmer for what he was a young man who could express himself only through the most hideous violence, and it shows you that what he had to express was real. So you have this portrait of this guy who, I mean, listen, everybody everybody knows that person in high school, and if you don't know him, then you were that person who was the outcast and a little bit odd and a bit of a freak, and he's playing with dead animals, and you're like, all right, clearly something's a little off with Jeff Dahmer, but then nobody could expect that this would be what he's like. And it'll get uh, released this Friday in New York and Los Angeles. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. I hope people check it out because I do like to support independent film and films that are different and films that are trying new things. Uh, so check out my friend Dahmer in theater soon. And a real joy to bring in, as I mentioned, my review of LBJ, how much I enjoyed the film. The writer and director of the movie is Rob Reiner, and he joins us now on Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. A tremendous career when Harry Met Sally, Stand By Me, Princess Bride, Spinal Tap, A Few Good Men, Misery, All in the Family, you name it, he's done it all. Rob, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Adnan. LBJ, I thought it was a terrific film, and my first fear for you was um, I'd seen it all the way with Brian Cranston, which is a terrific film on HBO. Jay Roach directed it, and Cranston was so good. And I said, listen, I love your work, and I love Woody Harrelson, but how is this going to compare to the other film? And the best compliment I can give you is that both are excellent films, and you need not have seen one to know the other. And if you've seen one, you can still see the other. How aware were you of the fact there was another project going on about LBJ? Oh, we were very aware. I mean, I had seen... Uh uh, uh, Brian do it on Broadway, and he was great. And I saw the the the, uh, the HBO film, and Brian did, did did a great job. And as a matter of fact, uh, when Woody was preparing uh, for to do this film, 
uh, he had conversations with Brian Cranston, and uh, Brian was very, very generous in helping Woody uh, give him give give Woody some tips on on what he needed to do to play LBJ. But it, you know, both you know, like you say, you don't have to. One doesn't really preclude the other. We're looking at a completely different uh, sliver of LBJ's life than than the one that you look at it in all the way. And one of the things I most appreciate about your film, Rob, is the fact it's 92 minutes. In today's age, where uh, too often films are bloated and overlong, as you said, you focused on what's really critical in this man's career, and I think that makes it more impactful for the audience. Yes. I mean, what we try to do is, is, is find out who is this guy? Who is LBJ? Because I, I, growing up, I, I hated him. I was of draft age during the Vietnam War, so he's an enemy to me. And so I didn't think of him as anything other than that. And then as I got older and I saw, you know, his his ability to pass legislation, his, uh, you know, effectiveness in, in the domestic area, I, I thought, you know, I, I understand this guy a little bit more because I've spent time in politics and I've spent time in California government as a, as a, you know, working in government. I had a different understanding of this guy. So I said, well, who is he? You know, who is this guy? It's like a tale of two presidencies. And so we wanted to select this one little sliver of time from the time Kennedy arrives at Love Field till the time Johnson delivers that famous speech in front of the joint session of Congress on civil rights. He has to assume the presidency, the most difficult, challenging time of his life, and we wanted to show who he really was. And he was not just somebody that you imagine uh, to LBJ to be, which is this bull in the china shop kind of guy, twisting arms and so on. He was uh, a very insecure person, very sensitive, and frightened that people wouldn't love him. So here he was having to take on the presidency from a, a loved, a beloved president, uh, and he felt like, I can never live up to Kennedy. So that's what we wanted to explore with this. Yeah, you had that great line JFK says of LBJ. He's a sensitive man with an enormous ego, and his wife says of her husband, he's a good man in a tough spot. The subject of race relations, as you said, Rob, really is the focus of the film in many ways, and there's a few snippets of dialogue that really struck me. One of them is when he's joking with, and I, I love Richard Jenkins uh, playing the yeah, Georgia State, when he says, what did Abe Lincoln say after three days of being drunk? I freed the what? And they start cracking yeah. up. And then later, Jenkins and, says it's a preservation of a way of life, and LBJ says, then why are we whispering? Which I thought right, was because brilliant. Both, both of those scenes are played in front, in, in front of African Americans who are there as servants. And these are guys who, in that time, didn't, you know, it was almost like, you know, the, the, the servants were invisible. And, and LBJ also knew that in order to get uh, Richard Jenkins, who, who played Richard Russell, a, uh, you know, a consummate racist, he had to pretend and act like he was one of him. And he did that, you know, pretty, uh, pretty effectively, as, as like he said in the film, uh, you know, I'm the only one that can speak Southern and, and, and Kennedy at the same time. So he tried to broker things between uh, two completely different factions. Your film has the line of the year, never underestimate the strength of a martyr's cause or the size of a Texan's balls. What a beauty that right. is. <laughs> right. That, 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 that's a, it's a great line. It's a big laugh. But what he, what, what he was saying with that is, because his, his uh, aides are saying, you know, nobody's ever been able to pass the Civil Rights Act. They, 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 there have been four presidents that have been defeated on that. What makes you think you can do it? And Johnson understood legislation and how to get things done better than anybody. And he knew legislatively it was the time to move this piece of legislation because 
He knew based on the fact that people were mourning President Kennedy and added to his ability to understand how the levers of government worked. He, he, he knew he could get it passed. And even with that, he paid an enormous amount of political capital because they lost the Southern Democrats. They lost the South for what he said was a generation. It was more than a generation. They're still a part of the Republican Party. We're talking with director Rob Ryder. His new film, LBJ, comes out this Friday in theaters. I recommend you all go check it out. Rob, I have a new appreciation for what else Lyndon Johnson did. I did not know he was responsible for Medicare, Medicaid, the Voting Rights Act, Unfortunately, the, the blemish of Vietnam stains what many people view him as. But do you think he should get more credit for being progressive on race relations? Because I think if you ask the average American, they would say, well, that was JFK's thing and that was his cause. But ultimately, as your film demonstrates, LBJ had to overcome the opposition, which you're referring to. Yes. And I think that, you you know, there's a lot of argument as to whether or not, you know, did he make a uh, 180 degree shift, you know, from being a racist? No, I don't think that's the case. If you look at Lyndon Johnson's past, his history, he was born and raised in West Texas in the Hill Country, a very poor area. He taught it in impoverished schools. He know, knew what it was like to be, uh, bring, uh, be living in poverty. And so you don't put together a legislative agenda that uh, you call yourself the war on poverty and it's the great society and, you know, put all these programs together on a dime. This is something that has to be in your bones and you have to be smart enough to know when you can push the button to make it move forward. So that's what he was able to do. And I think people will have a greater appreciation for him in terms of uh, civil rights. They will understand it, but make no mistake about it. He had Vietnam and it is the tale of two presidencies. And, of course, the current president, Donald Trump, is a very polarizing figure himself. You have been very outspoken, active. You're joined Twitter now in your comments. Obviously, politics, it feels like now everybody has an opinion no matter what. Do you see any parallels with LBJ and Trump, or is this just another extension of you being politically minded? Well, the only parallel between Trump and LBJ is that they're both, they were both larger than life, and, and they both have these kind of, uh, you know, boorish qualities. The, dick, the difference, and there's a million differences, is you've got with LBJ understanding the, in, in a deep way the nexus between politics, policy, and government and how those things intertwine and how they work together to move things forward. Trump not only doesn't uh, understand how government works, he doesn't even want to learn how government's going to work. So uh, we're seeing uh, you, you couldn't be more of a night and day difference. And hopefully people will see when they see the film, they'll say, OK, this is the way a president's supposed to be. And this is the way government's supposed to work. Right. Exactly. One can only hope. LBJ is yeah. in theaters this Friday. I encourage everyone to check it out. Rob, I just saw Wolf of Wall Street again. What a hysterical film. And you are brilliant in the movie. That oh, Thank the, you. I had so much fun doing that. How did that come about? Are you friends with Marty? Did he give you a call? Who got you involved with the project? They, they just called. They called me up and said, you want to be in the movie? And I said, yeah, of course. You know, what are you going to do? Martin Scorsese calls and, and says, you know, you do whatever he tells you to do. <laughs> you know, you just you know, get your bags ready and just show up on the set. Affecting a British accent when he'd answer the phone and then <laughs> be screaming yeah. at Is that actually in, in Jordan Belfort's book or is that you? Uh, yeah, no, that was there. I mean, basically, uh, his father, I met his father, Jordan's father, uh, at the premiere. And apparently, I, I, you know, he was a lot shorter than me, but apparently that, that anger that used to come out, especially when he was watching The Equalizer, that was his show. And, you know, you couldn't tape it in those days. There was no DVR. So he was really pissed off if the phone rang while The Equalizer was on. <laughs> 
How tough was it? I mean, listen, you're a concept professional, been in entertainment for 50 years, but I, I couldn't stop laughing. The scene where Leo is trying to explain his extramarital dalliances and how it's all shaved now, and you're, you're just being a supportive father listening to him while also chiming in with your preference on women. How, how fun yeah. was that scene? That was hysterical, and that was all improvised. We just, you know, that was the great thing about working with uh, Marty Scorsese. He let us go, you know, whatever would come out, and he was happy to have that. So we we improvised that, and uh, you know, it, 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 I never knew Leo was as good an improviser as as he is. And same thing, you know, I knew about uh, Jonah Hill because we also improvised a lot in that scene. Oh, hilarious. Such a great movie, Wolf of Wall Street. We just did recently uh, on Mike and Mike, our flagship radio program here on ESPN, the scariest movies of all time. And we had a lot of votes for The Exorcist, naturally, and Rosemary's Baby. Uh, but when somebody mentioned Misery, Rob, we all just cringed right away and thought about the, the infamous scene. <laughs> Tell me about shooting that scene. Did you, when you were cutting it, did you know how impactful it would be, the sledgehammer? Well, we knew it was going to be uncomfortable, let's put it that way, for the audience. And it was actually uh, my producing partner, Andy Scheinman, who came up with the idea of putting the wooden block between his legs uh, so that he could get a good crack on the, on the ankle there. But it is one of the most uh, cringeworthy scenes in movies. Yeah, they, they call it hobbling. Just the, the eerie way with which yeah. he was explaining the process is really unforgettable. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, actually in the book... She takes an axe and cuts his foot off. Oh. And I just thought, you know, I, I wanted him to be hobbled because I wanted part of him to be still intact after the film. <laughs> Poor Jimmy Conn. we got to have him in yeah. one piece. Uh, my producer, yeah. Dan Stanzik, is flashing a card. He adores a few good men, as do I. And I, I mean... That is, like, when people think about classic courtroom dramas, they think of that, they think of the verdict, of course, Paul Newman. What was it like for you as a director when you're adapting Aaron Sorkin's words? You know, you hear so many stories about actors say it's just pages and pages of dialogue. You, who is a director who's so good with actors, is there anything you can do to help them with Aaron's dialogue, which is so good, but I imagine it can be complicated because there's so much of it? Well, I mean, for 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 Tom, uh, this was more dialogue than he's ever done in a film, and we rehearsed. We rehearsed for two weeks almost like a play. So by the time we were ready to shoot, he was, you know, he had everything nailed. And for, for Jack, I mean, Jack is like, you know, the consummate uh, film actor. He was thrilled beyond belief to be able to play uh, that part and have that, that monologue because he says, Rob, I don't get that many chances to act. I love acting. And so he was happy to do it, you know, and he did the same performance off camera that he did on camera. <laughs> How many takes was the famous You Can't Handle the Truth scene? I think he did it like two or three times. We had like two or three different angles, but Basically, he did it the same every single time. He knew it cold every single time. No, it's such a brilliant scene. And again, I, I'm sorry, we're just doing like a Rob Reiner Carousel here with all these great movies you've made. But when Harry met Sally, um, again, such a funny movie and charming and romantic and sweet. What was it like working with Billy and Meg? Well, you know, Billy is one of my best friends, so that was a thrill. And Meg, you know, the famous uh, orgasm scene, which we shot at Katz's Deli. You know, my mother has the... The, the, the famous line, I'll have what she's having. And you can go to Katz's Deli now and you can sit at the table where we shot. There's a sign that tells you. But Meg was very nervous about it because she, you know, you're in front of the, the crew and there's extras there and everything. And so the first couple of times she did it, it wasn't very, you know, she didn't do it full out. And I said, look, Meg, let me show you what I mean. And I sat down opposite Billy and I'm pounding the table screaming yes. And I realize I'm having an orgasm in front of another. <laughs> So that was 
That was a little bit disconcerting. <laughs> uh, last one, all in the family. I know people still yell out Meathead. You know, Tim Kirchner was our, our baseball analyst insiders. He loves the the show. He's always quoting to me. He's a, a 60-year-old man, so, like, you know, it's really an emblem of his youth. But, of course, I've seen them in reruns, and they're so much fun. Any all in the family story you have, I promise. Whatever you have will be great. What can you give us? Well, the, the, the one scene that people come up to me all the time about, there's a scene that, that Carol and I did, which we actually improvised in rehearsal, and they put it right in the show. And it was a scene about me putting my socks and shoes on. And he would come in, he walked in, and he looked at me, he says, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm putting my socks and shoes on. He says, you don't do it that way. You put a sock and a sock and then a shoe and a shoe. You're putting a sock and a shoe and a sock and a shoe. You don't do it. And we get into this discussion. And people seem to remember that scene for whatever reason. They, people always ask me about that scene. <laughs> that is great stuff. Rob Reiner, his new film, LBJ, comes out in theaters this Friday. I encourage everyone to check it out. Thank you so much for the time. We didn't even get into Spinal Tap or Stand By Me. Such a prolific career you have. Thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate it, sir. Thanks, Adnan. Suggestions on Netflix. A couple of movies to recommend: Michael Clayton starring George Clooney. Very good film. Uh, he, of course, won the Oscar for Syriana supporting actor. I'd have to go back and take a look at it, but I wish you could have won for something like Michael Clayton because I thought he was really excellent in the role as this guy who's uh, investigating what's happening around him and all the malfeasance. And I just remember this, the last scene. He's just so upset. And just indignation. They used it in the trailer. He says, does it look like I'm negotiating? <laughs> yeah, he was a fixer. What's the deal with the horses, though? Like, he goes and watches horses. I didn't understand that part. I love Clooney. love the film. But yeah. the horses, I couldn't I'd have, to, I'd have to dig into the motif of the horses again. The reader also, Kate Winslet, won an Oscar. And the movie's fine. Um, what's really interesting about the movie is, I read the book after. The book's very good, by the way. It's quick. Like, 200, 250 pages. But Kate Winslet was in an episode of Extras with Ricky Gervais. And she was joking about the way that you win an Oscar is to appear in a Holocaust movie. And th so this was before the reader came out. So after she won, all I kept thinking about was the Ricky Gervais. She's like, oh, yeah, it's the easiest thing in Hollywood. Everyone knows. You make a Holocaust movie, guaranteed. And then she had yet to win an Oscar. It was like her fifth nomination. And then, boom, she went for the reader. But it is actually a good movie. I think you did her You did her top five. Yeah. I'm not sure you had the reader in her top five. I don't think I did. Like, I don't I, think you did yeah. either. I, I love her work. That's, why That's another so one where it's like wasn't her best film, but she was due kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. Hulu. 25th Hour, Spike Lee film, Edward Norton. See it? Just, you know, honestly, the, the monologue alone where Edward Norton just starts spewing bile and hatred. He's a guy who's going to prison. And so 25th Hour is uh, in reference to the fact he's got, you know, one last day with his friends and family before he has to go report to prison. And there's this one monologue he does against all these different, you know, ethnic groups of New York, which is absolutely fabulous. And I also love the ending. Uh, with his dad, in which they imagine what might happen to him. It's heavily done with voiceover, and it's uh, melancholy, and it's really beautifully rendered. Some of the better, one of the better films of Spike Lee's career. Another film that's currently available on Hulu is Airplane. Always a great watch. Still hysterical. Still holds up. I still meet people younger than me who say, "I just saw Airplane for the first time. Now I get why people like it so much. Why it's so funny." People speak in jive. Colonel Doljabar. Surely you can't be serious. Of course I'm serious. Don't call me Shirley. A film that I'm just going to mention, I have not seen it. I'm hoping Dan has. Prim Surpapat did a wonderful job for us here at ESPN. One time when she asked me, somebody had told her, I think Carrie Chow, it's, oh, you know, Adnan's big into movies. And so they had me on their podcast, which was a lot of fun. Shout out to Om Young Masuk, the whole crew. And she goes, hey, Prim goes, what about my favorite movie, Corky Romano? What do you think of that? I said, I'm sorry, I missed that one. 
That's not a real story. Come on. It's absolutely true. You love Prim. Prim's the best, but she was a corgi. Yeah, yeah, I like Prim, but I don't like her taste in movies. That's, it becomes an issue because people just assume movies, you've seen all movies. You'd be like, oh, Dan Sanzig, you work in sports. You watch all sports. You watch auto racing. You watch golf. You watch... And I'm like, no, no, I just... I watch what I watch. You know what I mean? You said Prim, and I thought it was going to be a tennis movie. I was hoping it was Match Point with Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> Phenomenal film. <laughs> Woody Allen, your guy. Jacob Slatter, one of my old roommates, John Allen, the great Jay Nats. It's his favorite movie of all time. He loves Jacob Slatter. It's an awesome movie. Psychological thriller, very scary, spooky. The great Tim Robbins is in that movie. Adrian Lynn directed it. It's currently available on Hulu. I haven't seen it in years, but I encourage you to check it out. Continuing my fascination with the Larry Sanders show, one of the funniest jokes ever is when Tim Allen on the final episode departs and Hank says to him, Hey, Tim, Jungle the Jungle. Underrated. Jungle of the Jungle is currently available on Hulu. I have not seen the film with Tim Allen. Speaking of presidents, Nixon is available. Oliver Stone, terrific movie. Gliberman loves this movie. He had it like number two, best movie in 1995. And I still remember his review in which he said, Olivier, Nick, Anthony Hopkins is channeling Olivier and that he's working from the outside in. A lot of actors work from the inside out. Hopkins is going the other way. Let's get the makeup, let's get the face, let's get the gestures, and then I'll start to inhabit it. Really risky, the fact that Oliver Stone thought Anthony Hopkins could play Richard Nixon, but I think it's excellent. It's too long. It's like three hours, 17 minutes. I got the two-tape VHS, but honestly, there's some great moments in it, and I love um, I love just the feel of that movie. Because, you know, listen, you know Oliver Stone's going to give you a good Nixon movie, Paranoia, et cetera, and all the, all the rest of it. Usual Suspects, all available, also available on Hulu, with Kevin Spacey's name in, in the news again. If you want to watch it, you don't want to watch it, I totally get it. HBO Now, Good Morning Vietnam, Robin Williams, one of my favorite comedies, one of my favorite Robin Williams movies. And W, again, speaking of political biographies, a film that I had high hopes for and I thought I was disappointed. Dan, what did you think of W starring Josh Brolin? Never saw it. Yeah, see, it wasn't worth, well, you, you don't really, you know, that's, that just shows the passage of time. If it was 95, you're like, oh, Oliver Stone making a movie about a president, I'm in, which was Nixon. 20 years later, like, yeah, W, I'm like, yeah, it was okay. I didn't even see Nixon. JFK, though, I did watch Oliver Stone, movie about a president. Those are your streaming suggestions. A Scorsese story. Now, Goodfellas was not a box office draw, but obviously achieved great fanfare on home video, uh, celebrated by the Oscars with all the nominations. Only Pesci, of course, winning for um, supporting actor, although Marty should have won and Best Picture should have won. But my point is, you're coming off of Goodfellas. And your picture, right, more of the same. At this point now, he's Martin Scorsese. He is director of Mean Streets, Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, Goodfellas. You know what I want to do? I want to make a costume drama. It's like, what? And Jake Cox, who's Marty's longtime friend, had given him the Edith Wharton novel, The Age of Innocence, back in 1980. And he said, Marty, when you're going to make your costume drama, when you're going to make your epic romance, this is the one that you're going to make, because this one is you. And Marty didn't get around to reading it until 1985 after he was doing After Hours. And he read it and he said, no, you're, you're right, Jay. The, the exquisite romantic pain of this is something that I can relate to. That's something I want to do. But it has to be the right time. So after making Goodfellas, a movie which starts with Billy Batts getting stabbed in the trunk of a car, he now makes a Victorian-era drama set in 1870s New York, upper-class society. There's nary a bullet. There's nary a gun. There's nary a gangster. Instead, it's Daniel Day-Lewis, stiff, rigid, restrained, I mean, it's so a polar opposite later when you see Daniel Day-Lewis in Gangs in New York where he's so unrestrained and so flamboyant. Here, he's just so inward and suppressed. And the story, for those that don't know, and I've never read The Age of Innocence until I'd seen the movie, then I read the book. But Newland Archer is this guy, uh, played by Daniel Day-Lewis, who's engaged to be married to his cousin, May Wellen, played by Winona Ryder. 
So the movie starts out, they're at the opera, enjoying it, blah, blah, blah. And then he meets Countess Olenska, who is Winona Ryder's cousin, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. And there's a big topic of scandal and gossip because she just got divorced. Or she's trying to get divorced, I should say. Her and her husband are estranged. She was married to the Count out, out there in France. She's now in America. So the seeds are set here. And there's a narrator played by Joanne Woodward. Joanne Woodward, of course, uh, Paul Newman's longtime wife. And Marty said, I wanted to have a narrator who's not a character in the movie. I just wanted her to be the voice of society. She is New York in 1870s. Nobody ever actually identifies who it is. It's just this voice. So she's explaining all the customs. And there's shot after shot, close-ups of the china, close-ups of the food. Here's the set decoration. Here's the decor. And Marty, for a guy who has his reputation for being so streetwise, you know, his dad, who he dedicated the film to, was a garment designer, worked in the garment business. So whenever they asked Marty about it, like, you know, he asked people that work with him, his longtime collaborator, Sandy Powell, and says, oh, Marty loves clothes. Like, he loved going through all the clothes of all the characters back in 1870 for this movie. So the seeds get set, and you quickly realize that Newland Archer, Daniel Lee Lewis, is engaged to Mary Winona Ryder, and he may outwardly say he's in love with her, but the emotions are not as strong, and then the emotions start bubbling towards Michelle Pfeiffer, who, of course, is this, uh, you know, forbidden woman, she's disgraced, et cetera. And the movie has this slow build, if you know how they're starting this emotion, because literally, Newland is there to help the Countess. He's a lawyer. So when she's seeking a divorce, she's actually looking at Newland for help. So Danny Lewis is under the guise of positive family relations. He's just helping out his wife's cousin. But you can start to tell that there's some emotion there bubbling underneath the surface. And eventually, he puts his hand on the cards, and, and now you can tell they start to have feelings for each other. And this is one of the great... Uh, bits of dialogue ever in a Scorsese film, what Michelle Pfeiffer says to him after he you know, basically shows his motion for her. She says, Newland, you couldn't be happy if it meant being cruel. If we act any other way, I'll be making you act against what I love in you most. Don't you see I can't love you unless I give you up? And his response is, nothing is done that cannot be undone, meaning I can break off my engagement to an owner rider here. And we, but, she, but she knows because she's already disgraced having left the count that... They just can't do it. And in this society, you have to conform. And that's where Age of Innocence is a very Scorsese-type film because of all of his films, it's about society and the tribe and the way the tribal regulations are. And if you step out of line, you get whacked. Same thing with Age of Innocence. You step out of line, you get ostracized. You're not going to be allowed to be a part of the family. You get cast aside. And for you know so many films he's made about loners and outcasts and people down to luck this actually fits within his ethos even though on the base level you say scorsese costume drama what are we doing quentin tarantino in fact was asked at the time this was 1993 so qt was coming off of reservoir dogs he was about to make pulp fiction he goes hey are you going to make a, a costume drama like scorsese one day he's like what like no like only marty would have these types of aspirations like i i'm just here for the guns and the violence and i do what tarantino does he goes i i could never do what marty does he goes, I, I know he loves Kubrick. Maybe this is his version of Kubrick's Barry Lyndon. He's showing he can do that. And in fact, Marty gives himself a cameo, you know, very much like Hitchcock used to do. Scorsese shows up as a photographer at one point. But, you know, ultimately he realizes in the story it's less trouble to conform. And even as he says to the Countess, our legislation accepts divorce, but our social customs do not. And, you know, eventually she becomes for him the most plaintive and poignant in a line of ghosts. And for a movie which is so restrained and everybody can't really reveal their emotions, when, when Newland Archer actually explains who he is, it's devastating. You know, he, he says this to the Countess late in the film, this whole story of forbidden love. You gave me my first glimpse of a real life, and then you told me to carry on with a false one. And later the narrator, Joanne Woodward, says he was the prisoner in the center of an armed camp. 
So the whole story's building up, right? Obviously, he cannot be with her, even though he's in love with her. He starts making plans. This is so well done. Late in the film, he, he's getting desperate, right? Every, every one of us, you know, you know when a young man's in love, he's got no other chance. Now he's just going to every recourse possible. And he tells May Well, another writer, that he's going to go to Washington. He's going to fight this patent course. And the reason he's doing it is because the countess is there, Michelle Pfeiffer. So afterwards, he finds out that Pfeiffer's not going to be there. And he tells Renona Ryder, he goes, oh, that patent case I was going to go to Washington for, that was delayed. And she goes, oh, really? Well, I was talking to one of your partners. He said the case is still on. And he said, and you <laughs> see his face like, uh-huh. She goes, he goes, yeah, but yeah, but it's been delayed. Like, I'm my partner. She goes, oh, so the case was not delayed. He's like, no, but my going was. And it's like, okay, like, you can already see that it may well and maybe isn't as naive as Newland thinks she is and as we, the audience, thinks she is. And it really builds up to the end of it where the Countess is just adamant. They cannot be together, even though she's in love with Newland as well. And they have this scene. This is like one of the most erotic mo- scenes in a Scorsese film. And they might as well be naked in a carriage. And all it is is he's unbuttoning her glove. Like I've never seen a movie with more close-ups of a glove and of a hand and how it's seductive. Just the fact that he just unbuttons her glove and holds her hand and they start kissing in a carriage. In 1870s New York, this was like the height of scandal. The fact that these two are doing this, and now it's like this illicit affair. But eventually he comes to terms with the fact that he's going to tell May what's up. He was the prisoner in the center of an armed camp, as the narrator says. So May comes in the room, it's in their house, and it's a wide shot. And you just see what a gulf, what a distance it is between these two characters. Because normally when Scorsese shoots interiors, he's not shooting it wide. But it's purposely wide when you see an owner Ryder's character and Daniel Lewis's character. And they start talking. And at one point, he says, you know, May, what I want to tell you was about myself the way I am. And there's a cutaway of ashes falling in a fire. Like, the, the symbolism is right on the nose. You know, this guy is now falling apart. And this shot is so great. And I hadn't seen The Age of Innocence in a while, as much as I love the picture. But I hadn't seen this shot in so long. It's a close-up of when Winona Ryder stands up. So think about this. For two hours, Newland Archer has deliberated in telling his wife he's in love with her cousin. And now he's going to tell her. This is the moment of truth. He said, May, I've had this feeling about myself. I want you to tell me about myself. Okay, here it is. And what does Marty do? Shoots the wide shot, wide golf, and they both sit down, wide shot. And then he goes close up, and he shoots the close up in three different frames. 24 frames, 36 frames, 48 frames of her getting up. And as he explained, he'll never forget that feeling for the rest of his life. When May stands up, she now asserts control. She now has the upper hand. And she tells him. The countess has left, and you see Newland's face. He's like, "Come again?" And she's like, "Yeah, I'm." You know, she, she already left this morning. Like, you can't reach her. There's nothing gone. He's and he's he's baffled. And she goes, "Well, this is the thing. I told her two weeks ago that I was expecting." And now you see Newland's face is, is just honestly just got hit in the face with a sledgehammer. He's like, "What?" And she's like, "I thought you just found out today that you're pregnant because she just revealed that to him." And she says, "Yeah, but but I was right." And I'm like, what a cold scene of emotional betrayal. May well, but Ona Ryder knew all along that Daniel Day-Lewis, her husband, is in love with her cousin. So in order to separate them, she uses the biggest trump card that she has, which is tell her husband that she's pregnant, even though she wasn't pregnant. And what she does is she tells his adulteress first. She tells Michelle Pfeiffer first, knowing any woman in good conscience is now going to realize this madness must stop. This illicit love affair must no longer go on. And that's why the Countess is going to leave. And now she's used that trump card and she actually is pregnant two weeks later. Checkmate. Love affair, doomed, forgotten. It moves on.
The prisoner then explains, uh, excuse me, the voice then explains to Anne Woodward that Newland became a loyal husband, very devoted, and, and life goes off from that. They raised three beautiful kids together, and later on, May passes away. So then his eldest son gives him a call, Dad, let's go to Europe before I get married. Okay, great. And while they're there walking the streets in Paris, he says, we're going to go see the Countess Olenska. Now, it's been like 40 years. Daniel Lewis is like the heavy old man makeup now, like he's in his 70s. And he's like, wait, what was that? The son's played by Robert Sean Leonard. He was in Dead Poets Society. And he's like, yeah, Dad, we're going to go see the Countess. And he's like, uh, he just basically makes it clear that that's not going to happen. And he says, you know, Mom always said that she knew we would be in good hands with you. And he said, because once she asked you to give up the thing you wanted most, and, you know, you did that for the sake of your family. And Daniel Day-Lewis just kind of takes that in and just says, she never asked. She never asked and walks away. And then the narration is that the fact that his wife knew the thing that he coveted the most in his life, this love of this other woman, is the fact that his wife knew that but pitied him for the fact that he never got to achieve his personal fulfillment, moved him inexpressibly. And he goes to the last, and it's a beautiful last scene. His son says, to right, the countess is upstairs. Let's take the elevator. And he goes, no, no, it's okay. I'm just going to sit here. You go ahead. And he goes, what am I supposed to tell the countess? That you're old-fashioned, that you insist walking up three flights of stairs? And he looks at his son, heavy sigh, and he goes, just tell her I'm old-fashioned. That'll be enough. And he looks up, and there's a great striking shot of the window, and he, he goes back to this image of seeing Michelle Pfeiffer back in his youth, and he remembers her being so beautiful, and he walks away. So the f- movie is just heartbreakingly poignant. It was made 32 million. It was made for 32 million. Sorry, made for 34 million, only made 32 million. And Scorsese, as he said, he goes, listen, first of all, audiences were like, they see my name in costume drama. They just, it, my fan base wasn't sure what to do. Obviously, guys like me are going to go see it in love with them. But like the average person's like, what? what? No, you just made Goodfellas. Now you're making Age of Innocence. Okay, I'll pass on this one. Let me know when you get back to the gangsters, which he did because Casino was actually his next movie. And he said then for the art house audiences, they went and saw it and they liked it. They thought it was very good. But they said, well, it just doesn't feel like a Scorsese film. And then Jay Cox, the screenwriter, goes, you know, it's not all that stuff. You know, the problem is because audiences went and saw that movie and go, all right. So this guy's engaged to his cousin and he's in love with another woman and they never get together. Why am I watching this movie? <laughs> because, because they never forgave him for the fact Michelle Pfeiffer and Dan Lewis never actually get together. And Marty's like, but that's the point of the whole thing. Like, Michael Bauhaus, the cinematographer, said at the end, he goes, why can't Newland just go up there? Why can't he go see the Countess? And Marty goes, this is the guy's whole life. His whole life is his integrity. The fact that he would not sacrifice his family for the love of his life. He can't all of a sudden forget that now and go up and say hi to her 40 years later. Nice to see you again. How you been? I've got three kids now. Yeah, I've sacrificed my whole life. I'm miserable. So it's funny how some of these things work out, but um, I think it's a really overlooked film. I hope people check out The Age of Innocence. You can read the book as well. Maybe you can see the appreciation of it. I'm pretty sure Dan Stanzik's never seen The Age of Innocence. No chance. That was the longest Scorsese story of all time, too, by the way. Please, if somebody listened to this, if they have any sort of feedback, please tweet us, cinephile ESPN. It was too long. That's my feedback. I'm, I'm giving you the exquisite poetry. Anyways, it's a cinephile. We'll see you next time at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Ferk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. To serve others in ways that promote human flourishing and create a ripple effect of transformation for generations to come. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.